Welcome to Faith Church Online. Thank you so much for checking us out. Our prayer is that you are blessed by this message. I'm going to talk to you about hell. There's a weight in the room. People go, okay. A few clenching up a little bit. They're going, what's he going to say? What's he going to say? And yeah, right? Heaven, it's all good. It's all good. It's heaven. Yeah, that's nice. Hell, it's going to be controversial no matter what I say. And I thought I'd open this up by kind of drawing out a few misconceptions people might have about the topics of heaven and hell. If none of you have these misconceptions, turn your ears off for a bit, but you might have heard some of the following ideas through general folklore and the last 2,000 years of history. So a big one that comes up a lot when people think about hell is that that is where Satan rules and punishes the wicked. Has anyone ever heard that kind of idea? Yes, fantastic. Right. Not a concept at all. It's never found in scripture. We can toss that one out. That's, it's not a him versus God, kingdom versus kingdom thing. That's dualism. It's not there. Another big one that comes out is this idea that there are nine circles of hell. Nine circles. Anyone heard about that? You know, the ninth circle. Anyone heard that? Right, cool. That's Dante, the divine comedy. It's not the Bible. Um, how's this one? When you go to heaven, you go upwards. We go up. Up, yeah? You're nodding? Yeah, up. It's up in the clouds. Maybe. False-ish. I feel like there's this image used of the Son of Man coming from the clouds and ascending to the clouds. But that's not literally what they're talking about. Uh, how about this one? This is a real popular one. You go down to hell if you like rebelling and drinking and parties and rock and roll and drugs and cool stuff. And you go to heaven if you like singing and relaxing. Something like that, right? That's, that's a big one. That's a big one. Like, well, no, that's nothing to do with scripture at all. That is, again, it's culture. Um, a big one is that you can move between one and the other. So like you can get kicked out of heaven and you can escape from hell. You might not have heard that. It is commonly used in fantasy and folklore and comic books. Nothing in scripture is founded on that. And how's this one for a big one? In heaven, we will be singing songs forever. Yeah, yeah, you got that one. Now, maybe worship forever technically might mean that you will sing songs at some point forever. However, how would you feel about singing a certain song a hundred billion times, literally? Has everyone heard that song? Because I did some calculations. If you sang that Hillsong 100 billion times song back to back with no rest in between it a hundred billion times, it would take you 1,300,000 years. Yeah, we're good for that. Cool, right? Right. It has to be more than that. Heaven has to be more than just, it has to be more than that, or, oh, my goodness, sing songs forever. Um, So before we continue on to my main point, it's just introducing it. If I say anything that makes you go, "Mm," or just makes you go, huh, and you want to talk about it afterwards, come and grab me, save your heckling for later, um, and we'll get down to it. I'm happy to talk to anyone about anything because I'm not a super genius, I might get things wrong. I hopefully won't get anything too wrong. And I want you guys to go away feeling encouraged rather than <sighs> cool. So let's start with hell, what is it, and why should we care? First off, we should care because there are a few things that are going to annoy people more about church today than the kind of preaching and evangelism that you see on the streets or even in congregations with someone shouting at a particular kind of person about damnation and torment. And if you don't do this, you're going to burn and burn and burn. And the particular things that that these people tend to be shouting out are things like drugs, alcohol, partying, prostitution, 
gay things, things like that. And they're singling out certain things and yelling at it and yelling it down. And that is not a good way of evangelism and it's not a good way to get the conversation flowing. It's a great way to get a punch in the face. And I get it. We want to protect people that we love from what we perceive as being something bad in the future. Sure, totally, 100%. But we frequently don't actually know what it is we're talking about. And you'll run the risk, if you're that kind of person, of leading people astray from trying to get to know God rather than, oh, okay, cool, I'm in. Um, any conservatives out there, don't worry. I'm not about to suggest that hell isn't real or anything like that. I just think we need to open the conversation. Um, and before we lead the passage, um, I want to bring out that there has been so much speculation and thought going into the idea and the images of what hell is for thousands of years that actually I can't stand up here and go, it's definitely this, and neither can you. We have a few things from Scripture that I really want to hone in on, but there's so much out there that makes you go, oh, well, that's what I'm imagining. So, well, maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe that's just fantasy. So, if you've got your Bibles, or even on your phone, bring up Luke 16, verses 19 to 31. That should be popping up there. There it is. Fantastic. Great parable we're about to go through. We all got it? Excellent. So, there is a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gates was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. And the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham said, Son, remember, in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus here received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. And he answers, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. If someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to him, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone comes back from the dead. Has anyone read this passage before? Right. Hands up if you have. Yeah, hands up if you haven't. You don't need to give me little hands. It's, it's, not, it's not a real bad thing. Um, if this is new to you, this is fantastic. Jesus is in the middle of his teaching and his touring. And he's debating with religious leaders. He's also teaching the masses. And he's teaching the masses what the kingdom of heaven is going to be like, what to be expected. And then on the flip side of this, he goes into the, what kind of people will not be welcomed into the kingdom of heaven. And what he's doing is he's, he's not going, well, pretty much everyone's welcomed in. No, 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 no. He's not doing that. Um, but he's flipping the idea around away from, well, those of you who are worthy because you're Jewish, you're in, and everyone else is out. He's flipping it around a little bit. So note that in the life of the rich man, he's got everything he wants. And just outside his gates, like right there, is a poor man 
who is poor and he's ill and he's in such pain that he's got like blood and pus weeping out of him. And all he wants is a little bit of food from the rich man's table, which he wouldn't care about anyway. And of course, because this is a Jewish story, we have to understand that the person who is sick and a beggar will also be a pariah who won't have any friends. They won't want to talk to him. They won't want to go near him. This person has nobody and no one is going to help him. He will be seen as cursed. And this poor man in life is basically living in hell. Whereas just next door, this rich guy is in paradise. He can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants. And flipping it around, in verses 23 and 24, it's suddenly the rich man finds himself in torment, and all he wants is this guy to come and cool the pain that he is now feeling. And he asks Abraham to send Lazarus for mercy, and this is the same guy who, when he was alive, had mercy from nobody at all, from the least who could have helped him to this guy who had all the means to help him, and he didn't. And then Abraham laments to this rich man that actually we can't get across. There is this great divide, this chasm between what you're seeing as paradise and the torment you're in. And, and I actually believe that Jesus is suggesting to these people something really quite profound and quite frightening when we get into it. Um, the chasm once you're dead is literal, but it is preceded by a chasm that has been already built in your life. And what I mean by that is in verses 29 to 31, Abraham says to the rich man that there's no warning that's going to prepare him and his family for what's coming next. They won't listen. They've had all the teaching. They've had the patriarchs. They've had Moses, all this great religious stuff their whole life. They know what is right to do, what they should be doing, and they haven't listened. So it won't even matter to them if something miraculous happens like someone rising from the dead. They have shut themselves off in their hearts, they don't care. Nothing is gonna change the way they see the world and live their life. They have already built a chasm with their actions and how they live their life. This rich man could quite literally have gone, have some food, and then gone on his way. Simple as that, and he couldn't be bothered. He has shut his heart off from love, he shut his heart off from helping anybody but himself, and it is those actions that have created this great chasm that separates him from the kingdom of heaven, and then when he's died, puts him in torment. Now remember, Jesus is using images. This is not him saying it is literally this, but he's saying it's like this. For those of you who have always known what is right, Always. You've known. You've known about God. You've known it from young or whoever it is. And then go, yeah, but I can't be bothered. Or I know what's right, but I don't care about people. That kind of behavior is what Jesus is getting at. You know what is right. You know about love and mercy. You know what God expects of you, how to treat the poor, how to treat these people. And you have refused to do it. You will not be welcome in the kingdom of heaven. He's not just saying, oh, well, you're great, but you had sex outside of marriage, so you're going to hell. Or you're great, but you get drunk sometimes, so hell. He's saying, you have turned your heart away from everybody and God. You will not be welcome in the kingdom of heaven because you have separated yourself. Um, yes. You've signed your own death warrant. Has anyone ever seen The Muppets Christmas Carol? Yeah. There's a great scene right at the start where Scrooge is visited by the ghosts of his former... I say friends, work colleagues. And they effectively say, we forged these chains that we're wearing in life. And then they go on to sing a song about how you know, they, 
were full of avarice and greed and cruelty and they kicked all these little orphans out into the cold and watched them freeze to death and couldn't care. And now they're wearing their own punishment. Not exactly biblical, but this is kind of what Jesus is driving at. If you have no love, why would you be into the kingdom of heaven? Why would you be there? Um, you might have noticed that I haven't spoken at all about fire or torment or demons torturing you or anything of that. I believe that most of that is images, mythology, fantasy, and we really don't know what it is. The, the clearest thing we get is it's a bad place. You don't want to go there. And the kind of people that are not going to be welcomed into the good place are the kind of people who have no place for God and love and others in their heart. Okay, cool. I'm glad that's cheered us up. Let's go. Let's go. Luckily, though, there's the flip side. Um, heaven, or more accurately, what I want to talk about is the kingdom of heaven. So, it might surprise you guys to know that I don't actually literally know exactly what it is like. I know, I know, I'm disappointing, I'm disappointing you, I know. Scripture gives many and varied like, kind of allusions to God's home. You get a snippet in Job, way in the Old Testament. Um, but all we really glean from that is it's imagined like a courthouse where God is the king and all the angels and the spirits are coming to and from. And again, it's using a lot of images, but it's like a kingdom. God is the king. Again, lots of language used to suggest that it is up in the air. But that would make sense if you're thinking historically. You don't really understand physics and you think, well, the gods must be up there because that's high up. And when you die, you must go down there. That makes sense. I don't want us to talk about the up there's. I want to talk about something a little bit more profound looking inwards and here rather than outwards and up there into the future. Specifically because if we can jump up to the next verse, Genesis and Matthew. Check this out. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then heaven and earth will pass away. I don't want us to focus on something that has been made and then will pass. I want us to focus on the one who makes it. Right? The place that we keep imagining as heaven is not of absolute importance, just like this church building is not of absolute importance. It's about us. Heaven, as a place, whatever it may be, important, but not where we should be focusing our time. We need to be focusing our time on God because God is the one who creates, lets it pass away, and then recreates. Um, there's a great verse I want to open up here with. Revelation 21, 1 and 3. Not verse 2. We don't need that. Is that up there? I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, and this is key, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. Scripture from the beginning to the end is telling us a story. In the beginning, God is with man in Eden and something goes terribly wrong. And the rest of the Bible is telling a very long story of the journey to reconcile man to God. And this culminates in God dwelling with man in flesh dying on the cross to break sin, and then resurrecting and bringing in the opportunity for new life. The promise to come is not just a place away from our home. The promise to come is the full realization of what Jesus began with his ministry, with his death, and with his resurrection. God dwelling fully with us as our king in a renewed, remade earth where things will be like they were originally supposed to be. 
all good, all good, we're not sure, cool. So what is the kingdom of heaven going to be like? I want us to throw away our images of harps and cherubs with their little bare bottoms and Peter at pearly gates and bouncing on clouds. I don't want any of that. You probably don't want any of that. Throw it away. The aspects of the kingdom of heaven. I've got a bunch of verses we're going to smash through them because I know we are pressed for time. Luke 13, 29 and 30. There it is. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. And there are those who are last who will be first and the first who will be last. God's kingdom of heaven is open to everybody. Now, back 2,000 years ago, to tell that to a Jewish audience would be like, what? They are the chosen people. They are being subjugated by the Romans. They'd been subjugated by the Babylonians. They'd been enslaved in Egypt. For Jesus then say, no, no, no. It starts with you, but the kingdom of heaven is open to all people. And it would have been just as mm, for them as for me to say to you, the kingdom of heaven is open to terrorists, murderers, rapists, Satanists, pedophiles. And if you say, no, it's not, and I throw this one out to you, yes, it is. I'm not saying that these people go, I'm in, cool, and keep doing what you're doing. But if we close our hearts to that group of people and say, everyone is fine except them, we're missing the extremity of what Jesus is trying to do. He is trying to reconcile God to all men. And that's not to say there's no justice, but it is to say that the doors are open to anybody who wants to change. Ooh, good. Getting low blood sugar. Okay, cool. Next verse, Revelation 21, 4 to 8. There it is. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. The old order of things has passed away. And he who is seated on the throne says, I am making everything new. Write this down for these words of trustworthy and true. Uh, this verse actually comes immediately after the verse from earlier where he says, the heavens and the earth will pass away and God will dwell among men. When God is fully dwelling amongst us, there will be no more tears or pain. And the old order, as in living a life under certain laws, regulations, competition, violence, jealousy, the old order of how we see the world will have no place. God fully manifest in us will see every single one of us, look at every single one of us and go, no, I see God fully in you. I see the value of you more than myself. I will truly love all of you as if you are my brother and you will do the same, which means there will be no more stealing or theft or pain or jealousy or misery. And that's something to hold on to. Matthew 13, 45 to 46. There it is. The kingdom of heaven, is that the right one? Yes. Is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again and in his joy went and sold all he had and brought the field. And the next verse, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away, sold everything he had and brought it. The kingdom of heaven is worth more than all of your possessions, all of your money, all of your potential riches and your success. The stuff of the earth will pass away. The kingdom of heaven will last forever. Really important for those of us who really are heavily focused on our careers and money and success. If you want to be a part of this, this is not about building money. It's about building family. And it is of greater value to you than anything else you'll ever have. Luke 14, 15 to 24. Bang. There we go. And finally, the feast illusion. A certain man was preparing a great banquet. 
and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to those who had been invited. Come on, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just gone and bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. And another said, oh, well, I've just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married. I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. The owner of the house became very angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done. There's still room. Then the master said, right, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. Not one of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. The feast, especially for those who are poor, would be the most wonderful thing in the world. There might be feasts in heaven, there might not but it is like a feast. And once again, we have this thing where he says, for you who knew the king and where you knew you were going to be invited and decided you have other things to do, you are not welcome. Let's bring in everybody else who you never expected. The crippled, the lame, the beggars, those that we ignore on a daily basis are those who will be invited into the banquet. Whew. And here's the best thing, and this is the real challenge for us. This is a promise of what is to come, but it has already started, and we are called to have a hand in its development. Jesus performs his ministry, and when he's teaching, we commonly kind of go, well, he's doing the gospel. And we go, yeah, what does that mean? What Jesus is actually doing when he's teaching all these things and using these parables, he's beginning to inaugurate God as king. He's bringing God to dwell with man. This thing they've been, the thing the Jewish people have been promised for hundreds of hundreds of years, waiting for God to dwell amongst them again. This is what Jesus' ministry is actually doing. He's teaching us how we should be living and what God is expecting of us because God is very, very suddenly about to be crowned king on earth. They, and then he teaches his disciples this. He tells them what their role is. And now we have the same role. Our role in the kingdom of heaven is not just to go and make disciples, i.e. make a bunch of converts, up the church numbers. Boom. That's it. That is a very one-dimensional view of what he's talking about. Jesus isn't making converts. He's, teach, he's teaching a totally renewed understanding of God, understanding of how to see your brother and sister, and understanding of what is really important in life. And these people were amazed, and they were amazed because it was something different, full of authority. And it was seen with Jesus living it out in integrity, especially around the Roman empires. The kingdom of heaven was alive then as Jesus was teaching, and it was alive then when the apostles in Acts got together and started sharing and, rem can't talk, and remembering what Jesus had taught them and then started teaching others. But they weren't just teaching others verbally. They were teaching it through the way they lived their lives, offering their houses, offering their money, offering their time for everybody. The kingdom of heaven was alive then, and it can be alive now. Sorry, flicking through these. At the end of Matthew chapter 5, which is commonly the Sermon on the Mount he's talking, Jesus says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And then he goes on to give these lists of instructions. like, Don't, don't just refuse to murder. Check your anger. 
because that can simmer in the heart. It makes you look at other people with hatred and loathing, and that can lead to murder. Step back even further. You know, don't just refuse to cheat on your husband or wife. Take a step further. Don't even look at someone and lust after them because that is seeing them as an object, not as a person. Don't just help someone a little bit. Surprise them with their generosity. Be as more generous than anyone ever expects you to be. And why? It's not so that we can earn our place with smugness. It's because when you know God in the spirit, you will start to see people as God sees them. And you will start to behave towards them as Christ behaved towards us, going so far as to die to show that he cared. That's the kind of thing he's going to be perfect so the kingdom of heaven can live now and give a foretaste of what is to come. Ooh, there's more. Or is there? <clears throat> this is not something that Jesus teaches that we just do alone. The first thing Jesus says is you need to go out with, with someone else. Go together as a group. This is family-based stuff. And then, after he dies and comes back, he says, I will send you a helper so that you will be helped. And we know he's talking about the Holy Spirit. Are you talking about that next week? Is that next week? At some point, maybe. The Holy Spirit is sent to the apostles at Pentecost, so that, not so that they can have a magical experience. It's not just about that. It's so that they can be filled with God and know God and go out in that encouragement and then start to show other people what God really is like. When God is king, that is where the kingdom of heaven is. And I know it's great to look out to the future. I can't wait to see what heaven is like. I can't wait to see what being with God fully in the future is like. If we focus too much on I'll suffer now and get it in the future, we're going to miss thousands of opportunities to show what the kingdom of heaven is supposed to be like here. This is our home. God is going to dwell fully within us one day. And God dwells here now as a foretaste of what is to come. I kind of want to wrap it up. And I was always worried when I was doing this, this was going to be my kind of roughest talk for a while because it's such a big kind of thing to talk about. A question might be going through your mind and say, okay, so what exactly gets you into heaven or not into heaven. And the traditional view is, you believe in Jesus, you're saved. Ta-da! Cool. There will be people in the world whose experience of church is very bad. And there will be people in the world whose understanding of Jesus is extremely flawed. And their understanding of Christianity and what we believe is very flawed. Those people may never, ever have experienced the kingdom of heaven alive. They may never have actually experienced meeting with Jesus. Those kind of people, we cannot go up to them and go, well, you just need to believe in Jesus or you're going to hell. Because that is such a shallow, one-dimensional understanding of what Jesus is trying to do. Jesus, when he meets a woman caught in adultery, he doesn't say to her, well, I don't condemn you, but stop having adultery. He just says, look, I'm not condemning you. You know what you did was wrong. You know what is right. Just go and don't do it anymore. We need to stop singling out people who might not fit our understanding of what it means to be a Christian and going, well, you're not getting in because of this, or you're not getting in because of that, or you are getting in because you said some words. 
Jesus is talking about the deepest matter in their heart. And there will be people in the world who have never really experienced a life-changing experience of meeting with Jesus. They will only know the stale ins and outs of traditional church stuff and they won't like it. How can we say that those people aren't getting in? It is true that believing in Jesus will make you saved. But it is up to us to show the world the real truth about who Jesus is so that they might believe in him. If we love one another as God loves us and then the world sees that, they will be getting a glimpse of what heaven is like. If we don't, how can we judge them on, well, we showed you, we told you, and you're not, you're not believing in it. Um, I got a bit rough at the end there. Sorry. I want to kind of wrap this up with a promise. There might be people here who are scared about the afterlife or are unsure. There might even be people here or people you know who are worried that they have done something unforgivable. If you're worried that you've done something unforgivable, it probably means that you are seeking to change and you're seeking to make reparations. The Spirit of God doesn't is not a spirit of fear. And Jesus isn't bringing fear into our lives. We're not trying to convert people through fear. That doesn't work. Fear has no place in the kingdom of heaven. So if you're afraid that, oh, I'm not sure, maybe I'm, maybe I'm not saved, I'm not sure, I'm not sure, you probably, you're probably closer to the kingdom of heaven than you think. Um, and I just want to close up by saying that hell has no power over God. There is nothing that can separate you from the kingdom of heaven that you yourself don't shut off. That God has more power over hell and the afterlife than anything else. God created the heavens and the earth. He'll pass away, he'll create them again. At the end of Daniel chapter 7, actually in the middle of Daniel chapter 7, way in the Old Testament, Daniel has this vision of what is to come. And there's lots of terrifying stuff. There's beasts and lions and destruction. And then right at the end of it, it says the following. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. And he was giving authority, glory, and sovereign power. And all nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is everlasting, and it will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. The kingdom of heaven will never be destroyed. Jesus is the undisputed champion of the world. He always was. He still is now. If you want to really know who Jesus is, come and chat to one of us. Come chat to one of us. If you don't know, if you're still not sure, come and chat to one of us afterwards and start exploring that. It is our responsibility, those of us who know, to show the world who he really is by how we really love one another. And that is the kingdom of heaven. That is the foretaste of what is to come. Because we don't know what it's really going to look like. All we know is it's something like this. Love, kindness, selflessness, unto death sometimes, where there is no more tears and crying and pain, there is comfort. And nothing can separate you from that at all. Hey, thanks again for checking out Faith Church Online. We'd love it if you could subscribe to be notified when we release a new podcast. You can find out more of what's happening by going to at Faith Church Wales on social media or by heading to faithchurch.wales.